0: Scripture from this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, in verses 1 through 11. Before we read God's holy, and inerrant, infallible word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Into our darkness come, Lord Jesus. Shine the light of your love through your word. Illumine for us your paths of righteousness and help us by your spirit. Now to turn to you to find life. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And the rough places of plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Christmas season is said to be a season of comfort and joy. And there is a comfort that comes from the sentimentality of this season. It comes from the nostalgia of Christmases from years past. We might, for instance, have warm memories of time spent with family and friends or from the excitement we experience as children during this season. Uh, Personally, I have very fond memories of going to see my grandparents over Christmas. It was one of the only times I got to see them because they lived a very long distance away. And you might have similar memories of this season. If it isn't with friends or family we might get a sense of comfort from the thought of sitting around a warm fire on a cold winter's night, drinking hot cider or cocoa, the smell of baking sugar cookies in the air, the sight of twinkling lights everywhere we look. There can be great, a great deal of comfort in the sights and smells and sensations of this season. But we know the phrase, tidings of comfort and joy, which comes from the hymn, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, isn't referring to comfort in any of these sentimental ways that we might think of. Not not that having sentimental feelings about Christmas is a bad thing, but the comfort and joy spoken of in that hymn comes from Jesus Christ being born who comes to save us from Satan's power when we were gone astray. That is what the song says. And it's pointing to the comfort promised by the prophet Isaiah here in chapter 40, verse 1, where he delivers God's word saying, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. The question for us then is, do we truly see the coming of God in Jesus Christ as a source of comfort? And by comfort, I mean more than the comfort we find in the sweet sentimentality surrounding Christmas. More than just serene images of the nativity scene we see on Christmas cards. More than the delightful memories of a candlelit Christmas Eve service singing Christmas carols and the ceremonial family reading of Luke 2. Do we find comfort in the one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas? Do we find comfort in who God reveals himself to be in the person of Jesus Christ? Do we find comfort in his life, in his death, his resurrection and ascension? Do we find comfort deep in the depths of our souls? Isaiah 40 challenges us to consider Christ from the perspective of the comfort he brings. There are three aspects of the person of Jesus Christ that we find here, which are meant to serve as a comfort for us. First, the coming Messiah is presented to us as a savior of sinners. He's presented to us as a savior of sinners. Second, he is shown to be the one who can sympathize with us in our weakness and can understand our suffering. Third, he is prophesied to be a source of strength. So if it helps, you can remember that it is the three S's, savior, sympathizer in our weakness and suffering and source of strength. And this morning, as we explore these three aspects of Jesus Christ, I hope that in all of them, we will be able to find the great comfort that God intends to communicate to us in the incarnation, when he comes to us in the flesh. So first, Jesus Christ is foretold to be a savior of sinners. But to get a fuller sense of what Isaiah prophesies here in chapter 40, we first need to understand the context of this chapter. This chapter, you see, marks a transition in Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 39 in Isaiah confront Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, for her sin. And by Isaiah 39, we see the prophecy that Judah will be overcome by the Babylonians, will be carried away into exile for her persistent disobedience to God and her failure to repent of her sins. God's people's future then looks pretty bleak. So that was in Isaiah 39. But then we get to Isaiah chapter 40, and here we find a major shift. Isaiah moves from a message of confrontation directed at those who had been unfaithful before the exile to now a message of consolation directed at those who would find themselves exiled in this foreign land. And this is a remarkable thing. Don't don't miss it. It is a remarkable thing that we find a movement from punishment for sin to comfort in these two chapters. What's communicated here is that God still longs for these people. He calls them my people, showing that he still identifies with them even after they have gone astray. It's a remarkable thing that he wants anything at all to do with them. These people who have disobeyed him, who have rebelled against him, who had turned from the one true God to worship idols. But there is a promise here that he will not abandon them. And is God burning with anger here toward those who had been so ungrateful and rebellious as we might anticipate? No. He speaks a word of comfort to them. And the word of comfort is this. Behold your God. Behold the Lord comes. Not only has he not abandoned them, but instead he is coming to them to rescue them. And the first part of this rescued outline here is that he will deal with their sin in a decisive manner. If we look at the details of what is said here, then we find that it isn't that God plans to just overlook their sin. Instead, sin is pardoned. The penalty is paid for their sin, and it is forgiven. No longer would they stand guilty before God. Rather, they would be reconciled to Him. The question is, what is the cause of this forgiveness that is offered? God tells us through His prophet that Judah has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. We could take this to mean that God, in exiling his people to Babylon, had doubly purged them of their sin, that he had offered a correction that was more than their sin deserved. But that isn't what we know this passage to mean, is it? For how could a temporary exile truly pardon the sin of a people who had offended God in ways that were beyond their repaying? But we understand this passage through the prophecy of God coming to them, the coming of a Messiah. And we know this Messiah to be the coming of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And through him, we know that God did not even spare his own son in offering a sacrifice that would cover the sins of his people. This was the payment that provided for the pardon of his people's sins who had gone astray. So for those who place faith in Jesus Christ, they have received a pardon from the Lord's hand, a pardon that has come by his grace alone, that is of infinite value, a sacrifice that both corresponds to the sin and yet has realities that are far beyond comprehension, being more than sufficient to cover all of their sins. And so we can see that this promise brings comfort in ways that the previous promises spoken through the prophet Isaiah hadn't. Already had been promised the defeat of God's enemies, the establishment of God's kingdom in which a descendant of David would be enthroned as the eternal king, the love of God being extended to his faithful followers. But this promise is a promise of salvation, and it is a promise, therefore, that speaks to the deepest need of their souls. How would their sin, which separated them from God, be dealt with? How would their sin be atoned for in order that they could be reconciled to God? And in Jesus Christ, we have the answer. God would pardon their sin by providing for them a sacrifice sufficient to cover their sin. Isaiah here declares that a time is coming when their struggle over sin would be over. Isaiah proclaims her warfare is ended. Now, when I read this, I can't help but to get images from the celebrations that erupted following the surrender of Germany and Japan in 1945, ending World War II. This week, we will remember the bombing of Pearl Harbor that thrust the United States into this horrible war, but we remember knowing its end. The headline, The War Is Over, was received with much relief. And we don't have to have been there to know this. You can see it in the pictures. You can feel it in the pictures. Those headlines on VE Day and VJ Day were a word of comfort after years of toil and hardship, death and destruction. But even as much as the declaration of the end of the war is a comfort, Isaiah's proclamation anticipates that God's people might have trouble receiving this comfort. Notice that God declares through his prophet, comfort, comfort. Not just comfort, but double comfort. And there's a reason for this. Remember, this is being spoken for those who will later sit in exile. And even as we should see the significance that God was sending them into exile already promising to rescue them, we must also recognize that it might have been difficult for them in exile to hear this word of comfort. In the midst of their despair, we must ask, would they really be able to believe that God wasn't against them? After all, why would they be in this predicament if God was for them? Why would they be in this place of misery, of suffering? Or perhaps they would have recognized the extent of their sin at that point, And so refused to be comforted by God, feeling that they needed to be punished. And let's be honest, these thoughts aren't foreign to us even those of us who profess Jesus Christ to be the promised Messiah. In the midst of great suffering, it is easy to convince ourselves that God isn't for us, that he is out to get us, or that he has turned his back on us. It is also possible to experience a wrestling with sin that plunges us into deep despair. And even as we hear that our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ, sin won't leave us alone. We're constantly experiencing its power and the weight of its guilt. The reality is the forgiveness of sins might be a complete conundrum to us. On the one hand, it might not seem fair that God pours out his wrath on his son for something we have done. And this might lead us to be hesitant to allow ourselves to be forgiven in the first place, feeling that we really should receive a punishment for our sins. So we might refuse to be comforted by God in this way. On the other hand, all of this talk of forgiveness could just seem to be an impersonal legal transaction to us one in which Jesus, being fully divine, lived a perfectly sinless life to uphold the covenant which we have broken and to offer himself as a spotless sacrifice. But a Jesus who is perfectly righteous, entirely holy, is really hard, perhaps, for us to relate to. He seems better suited in heaven with God than on earth with us, right? And this might mean that his death for us seems very removed from us. How are we to be comforted by such a Messiah who we find to be unrelatable? But I hope we will see here that God's heart for us is love and that his desire for us is comfort. This is what Isaiah is trying to communicate to us. It isn't simply that God is making some legal transaction by which we are purchased by him as pieces of property. The coming in Jesus Christ reveals his true heart for us in which he seeks to reconcile us to relationship with himself, cleansing us by the precious blood of Christ, claiming us as his beloved children. And so Isaiah continues in verses three through five. Telling us that the Lord is coming to us as we are into the desert of our real lives. He's coming to us in our low points and our high points, into our despair and into our pride. He's coming to us in the barrenness of our lives. And He's coming to bring refreshment to those who put their trust in Him. For when He comes, He will accomplish what he purposes. His glory will be available for all to see and his salvation will be advanced. It will be accomplished for those he came to save. The effect of salvation, Isaiah tells us, is that there will be, there will be a lifting up and a flattening out. The humble will be exalted, which means pain will be relieved. Suffering will be alleviated but the haughty and prideful will be brought low. Salvation, in other words, will have a smoothing effect. And we see this in the life of Jesus, don't we? Now, we might read through the Gospels and walk away thinking that God and Jesus Christ is full of demands on our lives. It's possible to walk away feeling crushed under his commandments and defeated under his demands. I hope that this isn't the impression we have, though. If we do, then we have missed who Jesus Christ reveals himself to be. As biblical scholar Ray Ortland articulates so well, God's deepest intention toward us is comfort. If the focus of Christianity were our sins, our future would be shut down. But in fact, Christianity is all about the saving grace of God. He overrules our stupidity with his own absolute pardon through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Do we sin? Yes. Do we suffer for it? Yes. Is that where God leaves us? No. When his disciples, when his discipline has done its good work, God comes back to us with overflowing comfort. See in God not a frown but a smile, not distance, but nearness. And we especially see God's smile towards us when Jesus shares with us in Matthew 11 that he is gentle and lowly of heart. It's the one place in the Gospels where he becomes fully transparent about the character of his heart. This is who he reveals himself to be, gentle and lowly. Are these the words that are prominent in your mind when you think about Jesus Christ, gentle and lowly. But we really do see this when we look at the life of Jesus. He is not in the world lording it over people. Rather, he goes to great lengths to accommodate himself to us, even the weakest. What we find in Jesus is one who associated himself with the lowly, those who were outcast the unimpressive by society's standards. He spent time with the sick and the lame. He ate with sinners, those who were considered unclean criminals, the thieves, the prostitutes. And he made himself accessible to the hurting, the sick and the crippled. So we can understand him to be sinless and holy. We need to understand him to be those things. We can consider the greatness of his glory. But we also must see that never was there such a man who was more accessible than Jesus. It didn't matter if you are a man or a woman, a child or an elderly person, single or married, Jew or Gentile. As Christian author Dane Ortland put it, the minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply. Open yourself to him. And why was he associating with all of these people? In order to lift them from their despair. The God we find in Jesus Christ is not one of condemnation and endless demands, but one to whom the hurting come to find relief. The sick and injured come to find healing. The tired come to find rest. The broken come to find restoration. And so we might feel as though we deserve to be punished. We might feel as though we could never be accepted, that our sin is far too serious, that we have gone too far, that we have done too much, that we are too dirty. But to us comes a merciful and gentle Savior, the one who called Zacchaeus out of that tree. The one who refused to condemn the woman caught in adultery. The one who allowed himself to be touched by the woman who had been bleeding all of those years with no relief. The one who wept over Jerusalem as those who had no shepherd. The one who was filled with compassion when he saw the sick and the lame and who offered healing to them. The one who was even tender in his restoration of disciples who had denied and abandoned him in his deepest moment of need this is who God is for us in Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you know his comfort? And it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about sin. He does. God allows us to feel the prick of our sin, just as God allowed Judah to be taken into exile. He does want us to be convicted of our sins and to feel sorrow for them, but don't mistake this for harshness or uncaring from God. This pain serves a purpose, and the purpose is it turns us to Jesus Christ to find comfort. Jesus Christ promises that those who mourn will be comforted and he's come to provide that comfort and when we understand this it helps us to make sense out of what Isaiah says just two chapters later there the prophet tells us that about this coming Messiah and he says this he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street a bruised reed he will not break In a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Jesus doesn't come demanding to be heard. He comes as one who is gentle and lowly of heart. We are bruised by our sin, but Jesus Christ does not come to shatter us. Scripture assures us that Christ does not come to crush us under the pain and sorrow of our sin. He comes to gently restore us that we might have life. And those of us who have a desire burning for God, but have found it impossible to get to him, will have that ember of desire fanned by Christ, not extinguished. He will bring the reconciliation that we desire to be in God's presence. Now, there are some to whom Jesus speaks harshly, but we should note that it is only to the proud, for they are unwilling to admit their sin or mourn over it. And in doing so, they are unwilling to look to Jesus for salvation and the comfort it brings. But for those who understand themselves to be sinners in need of God's mercy, Jesus offers himself freely and generously. We mustn't then cling to our pain, cling to our depression, cling to our hurt. For if we do, we risk not having any part of Christ, just as if we were to cling to our pride. Don't refuse what he offers. Dearly beloved, we aren't meant to simply feel sorrow for our sin or to sit in misery over the guilt of what we've done. God's desire for us isn't to become ones who are self-loathing. So even while he allows us to experience pain and sorrow over our sin, his ultimate plan isn't to leave us in that brokenness. His purpose is to heal us. And he bids us to come and to find comfort that he offers in Jesus Christ. This should encourage us then to come boldly before his throne of grace. As one Puritan author put it, Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort, he calls you. Conceal not your wounds, open all before him, and take not Satan's counsel. Go boldly to God In our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone for this reason, that we might go boldly to Him. Never fear to go to God, since we have such a mediator with Him who is not only our friend, but our brother. So we don't simply have in Christ a Savior. We also, in coming to us in His full humanity, He comes to truly know us. This prophecy in Isaiah points us to the reality that God understands us. He gets us. And in Jesus Christ, we have one who sympathizes with us in our weakness. This is the second aspect of the person of Jesus Christ we find in this passage. Look at verses six through eight. God knows our condition. He knows it well, in fact. And this is because not only does the Messiah come to us where we are, he comes to us as we are. He puts on human flesh, and in this way, he does truly understand that all flesh is like grass which quickly withers. God in Jesus Christ knows personally, intimately, the vulnerability of our humanity because he has subjected himself fully to it. He did, after all, come and live among us in the most humble conditions. He lived in a way that he didn't even have a place to lay his head at night, so he didn't come shielding himself from the struggle of the human experience. He lived it to the fullest, that he might know us as we are. Scripture even tells us that Jesus, even though he was without sin, was tempted in every way as we are. It means that he knows the power of sin. He knows that we are susceptible to its pull, making us unreliable spiritually and morally. And this is why God gives us a Messiah that is both fully divine and fully human. He can understand us as we are, communicating us to our heavenly father. Even as he communicates the heavenly father to us, he knows our weakness But he reveals to us the steadfastness of God's love and faithfulness toward us, even in the midst of our fickleness. Even when we are constantly changing, God is unchanging. So his promises are sure, even when we can't keep our promises. And so it isn't just that we find comfort in the reality that Jesus has come to forgive us of our sins. We can take comfort knowing that Jesus truly understands us. In fact, he's the only one who truly understands us. He is able to sympathize with us better than anyone else ever could or ever will. There is no situation that we can bring before him which he does not fully understand, that is foreign to him, for which he can offer no help. Brothers and sisters, find encouragement here to come to Christ for this comfort bring your weakness to him. Finally, Isaiah reveals that even as Jesus Christ is gentle, he is also strong. And this helps to fill out the content of the good news that we are to proclaim. Look at verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Notice here that his care for his people makes special provision for the weak, the little lambs, which he will gather in his arms. But he also caters to those who have particular needs. He gently leads those that are with, with young. All of this is communicating To us, again, that God does not despise those who are weak and have special needs. Rather, he makes a point to care for them according to their needs. But there's also a connection and a contrast that's being drawn here between the arm that gathers his sheep and the arm that rules in might. He is gentle as a shepherd, gathering and caring for all his sheep, but we mustn't mistake his gentleness as softness, as mushiness. He is declared to be mighty, and he will rule according to his will. We know that in Jesus Christ, we have one who is a good shepherd, talked about that this morning in Sunday school. We have one who cares for us so much that he is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. We can see his gentleness and his life and death for our sake, but we also must look to his resurrection and ascension to find the fullness of who he is for us. Here we find his power. We find his might, For we find one who has the power to overcome death. We find one who sits at God's right hand, interceding for us before our heavenly father, reigning in power over all of creation. And so we can know that we can, in our weakness, rely on his strength. He is mighty to save. He is also mighty to lead and guide. He's mighty to provide for us. He's mighty to protect us. Jesus is as our source of strength is meant to be a comfort to us as well. To us then, Isaiah declares, Behold your God. Behold your God. And that means that we aren't called to simply affirm doctrinal truths about Jesus and our salvation. It means that we need to know Jesus Christ in such a way that these truths become real to our hearts. It means that we need to experience the comfort of God in Jesus Christ. We need to know deeply the truth of his gentleness and his might in our lives. We need to find in him that God has not abandoned us, nor is distant from us. He is near, and his favor is for us. We are to remember that in this season, Not only that he has come, but he he has come to bring salvation. He has come in such a way to know our every hurt, our every weakness. He has come in such a way to give us strength. And as we move ever closer to Christmas, I pray that we would know these truths and that it would be a cause for us to run to Jesus Christ, to run to him, to find rest in him, to come and adore him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for taking on flesh, coming to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant that we may truly find in him our comfort, which speaks peace and encouragement to our souls. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the ancient creed of the church, the Nicene Creed. Christian, in whom do we believe? We believe in one God,